I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan, and we will be your bridge over the troubled relationship between Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, two of my very favorite artists. This one's such a bummer. Yeah, you know, I thought we were going to be in for just a nice, mellow, peaceful episode talking about these guys, but we find once again that the rivalries that exist within famous groups are often the bitterest... You know, angriest rivalries that there are. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially, well, this one just dates back so far. I mean, when you know each other as kids, that's when you really know. It's like second only to family in terms of just like fiercest band feuds. Yeah, you know, these two guys, especially, you know, they signify so much. Obviously, Seven and Garfunkel, iconic pop rock group, probably the most famous duo in, in rock history. I can't think of another duo that would be bigger than them. And they also represent something to me about the 60s. Like, you know, I was raised by boomer parents. And some of my earliest memories are looking at the album cover of the Simon and Garfunkel Greatest Hits record, which I think came out in the early 70s. And like Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel look like Muppets on that cover. (laughs) Like they're very furry. Paul Simon has like a mustache. His hair is long. You know, you got Garfunkel in the back. He's got his afro going on. So I associate them with childhood and and very peaceful feelings from that time. But yeah, it was not peaceful behind the scenes with these guys. I feel like their entire relationship has just been a 60-year cycle of a bitter, bitter fight marked by a reunion, a really short-lived reunion, and then another bitter, bitter fight that, that sends them off in different directions for an entire decade. Now, I think the 2010s marked the first time we didn't get our reunion. So maybe in the 2020s, if... You know, if live music is ever a thing again, maybe there'll be a reunion Zoom concert or something. Yeah, or, you know, not to be morbid, but it might be a reunion in the great hereafter at this point. Like, I'm not sure how many tours these guys have left. I know, we'll see, though. Maybe that's too dark of a note to begin this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, let's dive into this mess. Oh, man, like we were saying, these guys were childhood friends, which is what makes this so much more sad. They grew up together in Queens, and they uh, they met on uh, in fourth grade, right? They were in the school auditorium waiting for the buses to come and pick them up, which is such an adorable image to think of, like, you know, little Paul, little Artie, who's still probably, like, 
seven inches taller than Paul. And to kill time, they just sort of staged an impromptu talent show. And Artie stands up and starts singing a song and just blows everyone away, including Simon. And, you know, Paul, his, his dad's a musician, so he knows a thing or two about music and he knows this guy's good. Yeah, I, I read that Robert Hilburn biography of Paul Simon. I don't know if you if you read that oh, book. Oh, it's a great book. Uh, did you read yeah, that? Yeah, it was incredible. And book. there's a quote in there where Paul Simon's talking about this fateful meeting that they had. And he said that he was impressed by... Art Garfunkel's voice and also his ability to attract girls. And, you know, it's it's kind of funny now to think about Art Garfunkel being this sex symbol, <laughs> you know, because he's sort of, you know, he's this very thin, pale looking man with the blonde afro. I guess he kind of has that like angelic thing going, but yeah. But I'm just saying like that seemed to have been the dynamic with these two guys really from the beginning. I mean, that like Art Garfunkel was this good looking, confident guy. And Simon was, you know, much shorter, maybe not as confident. More reserved. More reserved, but had a ton of talent. And it's just fascinating that you could see that forming already at that age. And, of course, that's going to end up causing a lot of tension once these guys get a little more grown up. One of my favorite things about their early days is that they really got close when they were cast in the uh, school play of Alice in Wonderland. And I just think the casting is so great. Do you know who, who played who? Simon was uh, the white rabbit and Garfunkel <laughs> was the Cheshire cat. Isn't that That's great? Like just incredible brilliant casting. casting. You can't knock that <laughs> casting at all. So they were close as, as teens and they used to sing each with each other in their you know bedrooms trying to work on getting that Everly Brothers vocal blend. And they used to sing so close to each other that they used to study the inside of each other's mouths, like to watch how the tongue would hit the top of their mouths to try to like really mirror the phrasing exactly, which is like, you know, incredible diligence. And also if anyone wants to write some Simon and Garfunkel fan fiction, that's like a great place to start. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm a little disturbed by this, but I guess that makes you a better singer if you're looking at the other guy's tongue i i don't i'm not a singer so i don't know it, that seems strange to me but i, it, I it, the proof is in the pudding with these guys apparently that worked but there's a thing where like family members like think of like bands like the beach boys and heart and things like that where they can sit their blend is so much better than people who aren't family members because of like little almost imperceptible like dialect things like just getting that just so spot on really makes all the difference in harmony so they were right yeah like you said definitely the proof is in the is in the recording so they were singing together one day and they were trying to remember the uh, lyrics to uh, Everly Brothers song called Hey Doll Baby and they couldn't get them right and they ended up accidentally writing their own song a first song called Hey School Girl and it became kind of their party piece and they performed it at like you know amateur talent shows and stuff across Queens and um, and Paul again he, ambitious and his dad's a musician they and ended up bringing the song to a um, sort of a Tin Pan Alley Brill Building music publisher in Manhattan, and they uh, made a record, and it did very well. They, they published it as Tom and Jerry, and uh, Hey Scroogle got to, got to 49 on Billboard. So, I mean, it was a, a decent-sized hit. They went on um, American Bandstand and performed alongside Jerry Lee Lewis. So they were like, you know— Decent-sized teen stars for a minute there, and you would think they'd be on top of the world. I mean, it's pretty incredible to have a hit right out of the out of the gate. But there's this weird thing that happened that ends up causing the first big rift in their relationship, and I feel like it lasts forever in their relationship. Like they never really got over this. Like where Paul Simon, you know, he makes some money from this song, he puts it in the bank, and then he also signs a solo deal. To record under the name True Taylor, which is an amazing uh, stage name, by the way, True <laughs> Taylor. Um, but he does this without consulting with Garfunkel first. And when Garfunkel finds out about it, he hits the roof. Like he feels like Simon is sneaking behind his back and he stabbed him in the back. And it ends up killing their friendship for several years, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it's weird because Artie later would say, you know, I, I don't think I ever would have gotten into recording if it wasn't for Paul. Like, that was kind of his thing, and he kind of pulled me along. I, I wasn't competitive. I, I He was a student. He was an academic, and he was planning on—he took his royalties from uh, Hey School Girl and put it in the bank and was going to go to Columbia to study. So I think from Paul's perspective, he thought, okay, this isn't really my buddy Art's thing, Like, but I really want to commit to this. I'm going to make sure I'm protected and get my own deal. But Art, when he found out about it— a couple months later, I think, I think he actually was fairly long in the process of his own little solo career. Uh, he, he never, he just viewed it as such a, a, a betrayal. And um, years later, he described that as the moment that their relationship shattered. And this is 1958, you know? I mean, this is like 
10 years before Mrs. Robinson and everything. And it's crazy to think that years before any Simon and Garfunkel stuff ever was recorded, their relationship is already categorized as uh, shattered. But I mean, you, you, you made a good point about this before, this idea that like their, their relationship is essentially this series of reunions that they would go through in every decade, like where there would be a separation and then there would be a reunion. And it does seem like with Simon, because, you know, he does have a reputation for being a bit of a prickly person. Um, even sneaky or arrogant, you know, if you want to go that far. And if you are inclined to look at him uncharitably, you could say like, oh, as soon as he had a little success with his friend, he was already conniving to have his own side thing where he could be the star. Um, which I don't think is, that's not an entirely fair way to look at it, but it's not entirely wrong either if you want to look at it that way. And it's just funny how, that is going to end up repeating itself, essentially, uh, once these two guys get much more famous. Absolutely. And they they spent years apart. They didn't have a meaningful conversation for years. And then around 1963, sort of at the height of the, the, the Greenwich Village folk music boom with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Bob Dylan and everybody, uh, they found themselves back in Queens. I think they both were graduated school, and they decided to to reunite and be a folk act. And they, uh, they recorded their first album, which uh, not many people give much love to, but I really enjoy. Wednesday morning, uh, three, uh, 5 a.m. with um, Tom Wilson, the Bob Dylan's uh, producer. Um, what do you think of that album? I always really enjoyed it. I think it's solid. I mean, it's not as good as their later records, and it certainly sold poorly. I think it sold like 3,000 copies, which is like, you know. Oh, tanked. It would be like if they put their record out on Bandcamp or something, you know, back then. <laughs> yeah. But this is like a major label. So, yeah, they it was not a promising start to their career commercially. But so they they split, actually. They split again. Paul goes off to England to, to sort of make his way as a, as a folky over there. I think Art actually goes back to, to Columbia and, and keeps studying. Um, I think he was studying mathematics. And then completely unbeknownst to either of them, Tom Wilson about a year later, sort of after the birds are big, all the folk rock thing is getting huge. The birds and Like a Rolling Stone was a hit. He takes The Sound of Silence, sort of the standout track from the album, and overdubs electric guitar and bass and drums on it and re-releases it completely. Like, Paul Art have no idea. Like, Paul's over in England, and then he, he, he was still kind of keeping track on what was going on at home by looking at Billboard, and all of a sudden he saw his name in there. And was just like, what what the hell is this? And the song became a hit, and they kind of reunited just because it was a hit. And, you know, if you think about it years later, it, it kind of interrupted what they were doing. It, it, fame sort of came as the surprise, and I don't even know if it was like a welcome one. You know, Art was in the middle of school, and Paul had a relationship in, uh, in the UK with this woman, Kathy Chitty, who's... Um, Immortalized in Kathy's song and in America, the Kathy that he's singing to is 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 this Kathy. Um, so I don't know if they've ever really said this, but I always kind of wondered how they reacted to that as like, oh, well, I guess I got to like ride this thing out now while and strike while the iron's hot. And then before they knew it, they sort of were accidentally famous together and yoked together uh, to this thing that got way bigger than they ever expected. I mean, I think it's hilarious, too, that, of course, they inevitably have the argument over how they're going to be billed. Because they end up being Simon and Garfunkel. But Garfunkel isn't happy about that. He wants to be Garfunkel and Simon, which, I mean, that sounds really weird to me because I'm used to Simon and Garfunkel. But I, I mean, I feel like just in terms of like how those names sound, it seems correct. And then, of course, Simon's prominence in the group, it seems proper to put him first. But that was a fight, too, right? Yeah, I think Artie was like, come on, Simon and Garfunkel sounds like a law firm. <laughs> right. But he still has some lingering resentments about the side deal, the true Taylor controversy, right? At that at that time. Oh yeah, he later said, you know, I never forget and I never forgive. Is Artie's quote? I mean, it, it never really. <laughs> their resentments they had as kids were still present. Art was still resentful of the the true Taylor thing, and then Paul was really jealous of Art, his height, the way he looked. And his voice. I feel like we haven't talked about his voice enough yet. I mean, he just had that incredible angelic tenor. And Art sort of was the front man in a lot of ways. I mean, he he took all the, the lead vocal parts while Paul kind of handled all the guitar work. And it made him seem like the front man. And a lot of times Paul was worried that he wasn't getting enough due as the guy who actually, you know, wrote the songs. Yeah, I mean, it's funny reading that uh, Robert Hilburn book because it feels like a memoir, even though it's like ostensibly a biography. But you feel like... Paul Simon is using this book as a vehicle to settle scores 
with people. And Art Garfunkel is like one of the big people that he's trying to settle scores with. And like one thing that like Art Garfunkel said about Paul Simon is that he had a, a, a Napoleon complex, which is like a hilarious thing to say because obviously what that means is that someone is a control freak essentially, but also it's taking a shot at his height. So it's like a double shot right. at, at Paul Simon. This idea that I think Art Garfunkel always felt that you know he felt constrained and he felt overshadowed wrongly by by Paul Simon that they weren't proper partners and treated that way. Whereas from Paul Simon's perspective, he I think rightly felt that he was doing way more work because he had to write all these songs. Whereas Art Garfunkel could go off and smoke weed and you know hit on girls and do all the fun things that 60s rock stars got to do. Paul Simon, especially at this time, was an incredibly prolific writer. I, there was an interview that he did once uh, with Alec Baldwin in 2015 on his podcast, uh, Here's the Thing, where he said, you know, within a five-year five period, five period from 1965 to 1969, I wrote most of my big hits. And really, we're talking about songs like Mrs. Robinson and, you know, Bridge Over Troubled Water and uh, you know, Homeward Bound Sound and the Boxer and Sounds of Silence and all these iconic songs that even with Paul Simon's great solo career, I mean, those songs are still the defining songs of, of, of Paul Simon's life. And he wrote them all within a pretty small period. So, yeah, there was definitely uh, not a lot of love in this group, even as they became like one of the biggest American pop groups of their time. And this all leads to the last album they made together, Bridge Over Troubled Water. So they worked with Mike Nichols, the director, on the Graduate soundtrack, which was obviously a huge boon to to their uh, to their their influence and their their record sales. Uh, Mike Nichols decides he wants to cast both of them in his next movie, which is an adaptation of uh, of the book Catch Twenty Two. And so a few weeks before shooting was due to start, Mike calls up Paul and says, well, bad news. The script's really, really long. We have to cut your part. Um, but we're going to keep Artie. Is that all right? Uh, okay. He kind of you know, reluctantly accepts that. So Artie goes to Mexico to film alone. And, you know, for, for Art, this is great. It's like his chance to really not just be the guy who sings Paul Simon's songs. It's his chance to do his own thing. And, you know, it works really well for him. For, for Paul... It's just another example of like, oh, great. So now this my good looking partner is going to go be, you know, matinee idol. And I'm back, you know, in the studio alone writing all the stuff that's that he's going to sing to make him sound great. It just seemed like just one of the many injustices of their relationship. Um, He tries to put a good face on it. And he wrote the writes the only living boy in New York as kind of like a good luck message to him, which, you know, is, is, is a sweet, it's a nice song. But. It gets really bad when the shooting schedule, supposed to be for only three months, stretches into nearly a year. And so Paul, by this point, is just fuming. I mean, being cut from the film was bad enough, but being made to wait around while Garfunkel's being a movie star is just, you know, an ego blow that he couldn't deal with. Right. Yeah, he's back in school again where all the girls are gravitating to to Art Garfunkel. It's like they're back yeah. in, in public school days. So Paul writes another song, and it's, it's one of my favorite songs of his, actually, called So Long, Frank Lloyd Wright. And that kind of mostly addresses the sort of final, it's sort of like the final farewell to Art. Uh, and Art was a, a one-time architecture student at Columbia, and it kind of masks the hurt of this, like, splintered friendship. Uh, you know, I'll remember all the nights that we harmonized till dawn, I've never laughed so long. So long, so long. It's like really, it's it's heartbreaking to read. And Garfunkel yeah. sort of accepted it as such. He even said years later, you know, that was a wink from Simon to Garfunkel. You know, so long, Artie. We'll be splitting up next year. You may not know it yet, but that's the way it's going to go. Um, beautiful song, though, right? Oh yeah, that's 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 great. I mean, that whole record is amazing. I didn't realize it was the biggest selling record of all time until I think until Thriller. I think, or at least through most of the early seventies. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the Simon and Garfunkel Greatest Hits album and like Bridge Over Troubled Water, if you were raised by boomers, you had those records implanted into <laughs> your brain at a very early age. So Art comes back from filming finally and they're recording Bridge Over Troubled Water and they need a 12th song for the album. I don't know why, but they felt that 12 songs was the number of tracks you needed for it. So Paul has a song called Cuba C. Nixon No, which is sort of a, a pretty overtly political track. And... Garfunkel's not feeling it. He just thinks this is like way too blatant, way too obvious. 
he wants to uh, have an old uh, Creole corral in there, which is a very art thing to want to do. Uh, and neither one would budge. Neither, Paul wouldn't wouldn't take a song off, and Art really wanted this this Creole corral. So instead of compromise, well, I guess this was a compromise. It only came out with eleven tracks, which I feel like they were both wrong in that case. I, I feel like in a way they their stalemate was the best thing that could have happened because I feel like I haven't heard Cuba C Nixon no, but. Just judging by it's that not a good song. song title. It sounds awful. But this is all leading up to, I think, one of the most fascinating to me, like fissures in their relationship as it manifested in their music, which was uh, the resentments that came out of the big song from that record, which, of course, is Bridge Over Troubled Water, which is a song that Paul Simon writes and I feel like instantly becomes a standard. Like it's a song that all sorts of singers ended up covering within a year or two of it coming out. The, the the best version, in my view, being the Aretha Franklin version, which is just beautiful powerhouse uh, rendition of that. And it's like one of those songs, it's like this big, beautiful ballad that like, if you were to go into an algorithm and say, give me the greatest song of all time, like I feel like it would produce something like Bridge Over Troubled Water. Like it just has that kind of, you know, really strong, beautiful, like emotional impact type thing. It's like what you think of when you think of a great song. I mean, isn't that fair to say? Oh, it's a catharsis. It just, it brings, it gives you hope, you know, it's comforting. It's a catharsis. It just, it just feels like wrapping a big warm towel around you after getting out of a shower or something, you know, it just, it makes you feel loved. It makes you feel safe. I, I It's really one of my all time favorite pieces of music. Yeah. It feels very familiar the first time you hear it. And yet there's yeah. also a lot of very unique touches that, that Simon's able to bring into that song. And the person who ends up singing it, of course, is Art Garfunkel. Like, I don't think Simon sings at all on that song, even as a harmony singer. And when they would perform it live, like, Simon would actually leave the stage and let Garfunkel sing it. Um, but later on, after Simon and Garfunkel broke up, like, Paul Simon would feel really bitter about this. He actually did an interview. Uh, in 1972 with John Landau of Rolling Stone where he complained that like Art Garfunkel originally didn't want to sing Bridge Over Troubled Water and that Paul Simon had to convince him to sing it. And then when that happened, the audience would always go nuts for Art Garfunkel and he would be the star while Paul Simon was literally standing in the wings. And at that point, he started to feel like, what the hell is this? Why am I being overshadowed? you know, for my own song. And it really seems like that song, which again is this iconic track, it feels like in a way like a like a bow on the sixties in the same way that like Hey Jude does by the Beatles. Yeah, or let be it be. Crown- yeah. yeah, let it be. I mean this crowning achievement. And in a way I feel like it was maybe the final nail in the coffin. You know, this like at least for Simon, this idea that like I don't want to be overshadowed I don't need this guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, don't don't you think that's fair to say? Well, I think it definitely cemented that feeling. I think it got even worse when Mike Nichols came back to art and was like, hey, yeah, Catch-22, that was great. Want to make another movie? And Paul just said, you know what? All right, all right. You want to go be a movie star? Fine. Like, I, I don't, I clearly don't need you. I can write all this stuff and sing it myself. Go do your thing. And, um, and that was really, I think, the death knell. And I don't actually know if they really talked it out and formally split. I think it was just kind of one of those, like, we're not going to talk about it. We're just not going to work together anymore. Is that Does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. And that movie that Nichols wanted Art Garfunkel to be in after Catch-22 is Carnal Knowledge, which is great film. A, it's a great movie. And I got to say, Art Garfunkel, underrated actor. He's really yeah. good in that movie, and there's another movie uh, that I love him in called Bad Timing, Nicholas Rogue movie from 1980. And both of those movies are like quite dark explorations of like the male sexual psyche, like a, basically about like how men are awful. And Garfunkel <laughs> plays very unlikable people in those movies, and uh, he's actually like pretty fearless. And portraying that, and again, it kind of runs counter to his image, which is of this, you know, sort of angelic. soft, angelic, milk toast type singer. He has a dark side. It's weird to say Art Garfunkel's dark side, but it's true. He has a dark side that he really shows, I think, more as an actor than as a singer, uh, which is really fascinating. But yeah, you're right that 
Simon was feeling stifled. He wanted to be the main guy. He wanted to be true Taylor in the 70s. <laughs> and Garfunkel was probably feeling that, you know, Simon wasn't giving him the respect that he needed in the group. And he was going to go off and be a movie star. And I feel like if you're going to make a movie about Simon and Garfunkel, one of the like crucial dramatic scenes when you'd have the big orchestral crescendo is their last concert in July 1970 at a New York stadium in front of like 14,000 people. They play their last show. They go into the parking lot. They pause. They shake hands. And they just go their separate ways, you know, had the camera hold on that empty part of the parking lot. Like, oh, devastating. That sounds like a Paul Simon song. Paul Simon should have written that as a song. Oh, my God. But they weren't done for good. And really, I mean, they were collaborating fairly soon after that, at least like, I guess it was five years after that when they got back together. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, Paul felt that Art's solo career was not taking off because he was taking these really like kind of saccharine ballads and and stuff like his have you heard uh art's first solo album album called angel claire which is it's got some good stuff on it. he's doing songs by great songwriters like van morrison jimmy webb and randy newman uh i think paul actually helps him out and does uh does backing vocals on uh the um charlie monroe song what's it called down in the willow garden with jerry garcia's on it too i think jerry garcia's on it jj kale plays a guitar solo on it i mean there's like some badass people that play on a very not badass record. I mean, at least in terms of like being a tough record that you would associate with those guys. I actually like Angel Claire. I have to say it's like if, if you enjoy seventies yacht rock, Angel Claire, <laughs> I think is like a pretty good record. And uh, it has a lot of the hallmarks of like soft rock of that time. And, you know, our Garfunkel is a really great singer. Uh, even when the material on that record is, kind of weak the sound of it and the musicianship i think is um still enough for me to enjoy it i think the worst thing about angel claire or the the way that it suffers is when you compare it to the paul simon records that were coming out at that time like the the self-titled record that comes out in 72 that has mother and child reunion and me and julio done by the schoolyard and duncan duncan rules love duncan duncan is an amazing song and then you have There Goes Ryman Simon, which has Kodachrome and it has American Tune. I mean, he really, you know, hit the ground running, Paul Simon, with his solo career. And I had to laugh, again, when I read the Robert Hilburn book. Um, there's a very catty section in that book where, they con- where Hilburn compares the critical reaction to Angel Claire to like the reception that the early Paul Simon records were getting. And obviously Art Garfunkel is not going to come out looking very good in that kind of comparison. And I just felt like maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I was, when I read that, I felt like, Oh, this is Paul Simon pushing that button like 50 years later. Like I'm still going to show this guy up, you know, I'm going to settle the scores against art by, you know, showing him up in this way. Although, you know, in, in Artie's defense, Andrew Claire, like you said, incredible musicianship. And I don't think art gets enough credit uh, for sort of the crafting the, the sonic elements of a lot of the, the Simon and Garfunkel albums. I mean, a lot of um, the, the Frank Lloyd Wright nickname that that's Paul gave him was partially because he was an architecture student, but also because he credited him for sort of being able to be the one to build the tracks and arrange them. And so a lot of that stuff that, you know, I mean, obviously Paul wrote the songs, but a lot of the, the arrangements and just even like the production work and the mixing, Art had a huge say in and, and had a, a lot of sway in too. So, um, and that really comes across in his solo work, but it didn't take off in the same way. I think I saw a documentary where, and I didn't know this, like my favorite Paul Simon song and Simon and Garfunkel song is The Boxer. And there's that little instrumental break in the middle where I think it's a flute or I don't know what instrument it is, but um, Art Garfunkel wrote that solo, which is really beautiful. It's like one of my favorite parts of the song. So yeah, you're right. He did have a way of arranging songs that did make an impact that, you don't necessarily give him credit for when you think about Simon and Garfunkel. You just sort of think that Paul Simon did it all. And it does seem like on some level Simon recognized that because, you know, in 1975, they end up getting back together and they did that song, My Little Town. Which 
I actually love it. Paul said he wrote it for art as like a favor because he, his image needed toughening up because all there's Angel Claire really wasn't cutting it. You know, it was all saccharine, right. lightweight pop ballads. So he says, you know what? Here, here's this like really unsentimental song about, you know, a guy who hates where he grew up. And, and this this will give you some some weight, some heft to really like help you. That was what I brought to the partnership. And, and, you, and you know, I've never been able to work out if this was like a genuine desire to be helpful or Paul's way of saying to his old friend, like, no, you dummy, here's how you do it you know like I, I can't figure out like what his intent was behind giving him that song i mean i think it was a little bit of both probably i think you know yeah. like with, with, with when it comes to simon and garfunkel my impression is that paul simon has an attitude that you could describe as canny maybe a less charitable person could describe as cynical where it's almost like a bank that he can go back to and get more capital from when he needs it because there's definitely moments in his career where he was in lulls where he ended up returning to that well to revive his career. Now, I mean, this isn't really an instance of that because he was still, um, I mean, he was pretty successful uh, at this time. And uh, in a way, it kind of feels like maybe he was doing Art Garfunkel a favor by doing this. Like this, this song ended up being on both of their records. It's on Still Crazy After All These Years for Simon. And I think it's on Breakaway. Breakaway, for yeah. Also a it good album. Being, I I haven't dug that deep into the Garfunkel discography, so I'll, I'll take your word for it that Breakaway is good. But it was a top ten hit, but and they ended up playing it on SNL. But you know, even that, like, it, it's pretty awkward when you watch them. It's great. I mean, it's like they. I mean, it, it's a it's kind of a train wreck in a way. I mean, you cringe because it's they're really playing up. They're like we hate each other, but here we are. Thing. I mean, I think Paul says something like, "So you've come crawling back." And Art says, oh, it's really nice for you to invite me on your show, Paul, which is, you know, I mean, it, you can't tell how much of that is just for laughs and how much of it is just like, you know, a socially acceptable way to vent their their resentment towards each other. And my favorite appearance that they ever did ever bar none is is the 1975 Grammys when Paul Simon uh. and John Lennon are presenting an award. I, for, I think it's record of the year or something. I forget what it is. And they announced the winner and accepting the award on behalf of whoever won is Art Carfunkel. And Art walks up there and he's wearing his his uh, his tuxedo T-shirt. And Paul just looks at him and goes, I thought I told you to wait in the car. <laughs> which which is, always cracks me up. It's a great line, but yeah, it's just like, ah, oh, Jesus. It's brutal. <laughs> but I mean, again, just the idea of, you have Lennon and McCartney giving them the award. So you have their whole thing. And then you have, Simon and Garfunkel acting out their whole thing. I mean, come on, you you can't beat that, especially if you host a rivalries podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is the big bang of of seventies rock star rivalries. Oh, it's so good. We're gonna take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con: The Story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? 
Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Now, when I think about Simon and Garfunkel reunions, like the thing I always think of is the Central Park reunion that occurred in the early 80s. And I guess I would add this to the trilogy of like iconic Simon and Garfunkel albums that I remember from when I was a kid. The Greatest Hits album, Bridge Over Troubled Water, and then the live record from this show where they're on the cover and it looks like they're both wearing like foundation and rouge. I don't know if you have. I don't know if you've seen the video of that. It looks like they're wearing makeup in the video. Oh, oh yeah, it was like a big. Paul really wanted to wear a hairpiece and was trying to get Artie <laughs> to do one too, because he just, you know, he wanted to look like their their sixties selves, and they're both starting to right. get a little fit on top. So yeah, they. I I don't doubt that they had some some pancake makeup on there because I think I mean yeah they were around forty years old when that happened. So you know, especially at that time, that was pretty old for a rock star. And they're really leaning on the nostalgia that people, you know, were really starting to have for the 60s at that point. And again, like with, as I was saying before, like this was a moment in in Paul Simon's career, like where he was probably at his lowest. This was like the the, the period before Graceland, obviously, totally reinvents his career in 1986. But like, you know, after like One Trick Pony, which was a movie that he starred in, actually a pretty good movie. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, I haven't seen it. Out. No, it, it's it's pretty good. I it, actually Paul Simon as an actor is also quite good, although not as good as Art Garfunkel. I'll give Garfunkel the edge in terms of acting uh, in in the head to head matchup. But you know, One Trick Pony wasn't a success, and then he ended up putting out a record called Hearts and Bones a little bit after uh, this Simon and Garfunkel reunion, and that was a commercial flop. Although that is also like uh, quite a good record. Um, but I know like with this reunion that they did at the Central Park show, which was a humongous show. It was like half a million people. It's bigger than Woodstock. It's bigger than Woodstock. And I think the idea was that, cause I, I mean, they ended up doing a re, uh, like a tour after that. And I think there was a thought that they were going to actually make a record. But they were just sniping at each other constantly behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. I mean, on this. So the the concert in Central Park led to a a world tour in 82. And before long, this they weren't speaking to each other. And finally, Paul was like, you know, what gives what's wrong? And Art said, you know what? I'm I'm still pissed about the True Taylor thing. And I guess Paul was like, <laughs> I, you know, I, was fi- I was 15 years old. How can you carry that betrayal for 15 years? You know, you punish me for a mistake I made when I was a teenager. And Art looked at him and said, you know what? You're still the same guy, which is, oh, oh. No one I know. Hear it's that. Like, I just love the True Taylor. He could not get over it. Couldn't get <laughs> over it. I mean, Am I wrong? I, I think Hearts and Bones was the beginning. Like, I think that originated as a, as a Simon and Garfunkel record, and then it became a Paul Simon record. Am, am I wrong on that? Yeah, it was going to be called Think Too Much, and they were recording together. I mean, this was like, I think by this point, it was clear that, like, you know, this really wasn't working. They were just trying to grin and bear it and make the album because it would have sold a bazillion copies. And I, their working methods were totally different. Like, Art was always a little more like, you know, he'd like to go take walks and listen to stuff on his Walkman and kind of like think, and Paul's a lot more methodical about it. And I guess, I guess Paul was mad at him for like smoking a lot of weed at that point too. So they were just always button heads about just how to go about doing it. By the end, they ended up, I guess Art white or Paul wiped all of Art's vocals from it, which is just brutal and, and said, you know what? These songs are too personal. This is, I think it was about the dissolution of his marriage. You know what? This is mine. Sorry, Art, you're gone. Which I think makes sense, actually. When you hear Hearts and Bones, it does make sense as a Paul Simon record. 
Oh my God. I mean, the title track, I mean, you take two bodies and you twirl them in the one, their hearts. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the lyrics and that you're, you're absolutely right. I think it, it makes more sense as something that's just so personal from him. And I know like, I mean, Art Garfunkel has been criticized for basically not interpreting words like on his records. Like he's so much more of a melody guy. He doesn't really dig into like the lyrical content necessarily. Like there's a song on Angel Claire called Old Man. It's a Randy Newman song. And it's this song basically about an elderly man dying alone. A lot of pathos in that song. And then you listen to the Art Garfunkel version, and it's like this beautiful pop song. And it's like he didn't really even look at the at the content of the song like when he did his arrangement of it. Uh, so it, it would have been funny to... If he had done that to like a Simon and Garfunkel version of of Hearts and Bones, I think it's funny too that uh, when Graceland came out a few years after that, which of course again huge success, ends up reinventing Paul Simon's career. That Art Garfunkel slagged that off, that he didn't like like that record. He thought it was like a novelty record, essentially. Oh yeah, he said like, okay, cool, like that that South African sound is good for like a track, but. Art always prided himself on, like, on Bridge Over Troubled Water, every song sounds so different. I mean, you've got, like, the Vegas horns of Keep the Customer Satisfied. You've got, like, Cecilia and the weird percussion. You've got the gospel stuff of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Every, if you look at it, every track has a really distinct feel, and Art cr credits himself with doing that. And so I think with something like Graceland, which is, you know, obviously a masterpiece and, you know, one of my favorite albums, he thought, like, okay... This is great. This is a great spice. It's not a whole meal. Like let's 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 even it up a bit or vary it up a bit. So yeah, he, he kind of was pretty vocal about not being all that into it. Yeah, which again, I mean, I'm sorry. I just think it's hilarious that Art Garfunkel slagged off Graceland. I just think <laughs> I think that just shows the pettiness of these two guys. You know, could be better. On, it's could Grace, be better. It's it's Graceland, Art Garfunkel. Like, what have you done musically since Angel Claire? Not a whole lot, my friend. Hey, that song uh, from Watership but... Down. <laughs> okay, you have that. That's about it. So these guys end up getting reunited again in 1990 when they're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And um, it's like they're... the SNL thing all over again. Yeah, I mean, they were fairly cordial, but there's like definitely some subtweets dug into uh, their interaction at that speech. Yeah, Paul's up there at the podium and says, now we can join all the other happy couples like Ike and Tina Turner, the Everly Brothers, <laughs> Mick and Keith, Paul and the other Beatles, which is, you know, pretty good. And then Art tries to be sincere. He says, I want to thank most of all the person who's the most enriched my life by putting these great songs through me. My friend Paul here. And, you know, it should have been this touching moment of reconciliation, but... Paul can't resist just, just that little dig. He says, Arthur and I agree about almost nothing. But it's true. I have enriched his life quite a bit now that I think about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then they performed and then like they split and they didn't say anything to each other. So I'm guessing that Art Garfunkel did not appreciate that little dig at the end. And it seems like at this point, you know, the iconography with these two guys is that they're old friends, essentially. Like there was a there's that song, Old Friends. There was a tour that they did a decade after this called Old Friends. But, I mean, it seems like by now that they are not friends, right? I mean, it seems pretty clear that their friendship has ended a long time ago. And oh, it, just makes oh, me, it, it just makes me think of, like, the other speech that Paul Simon gave at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when he was inducted as a solo artist. And yet, no Angel Claire, Claire Love from the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for Art Garfunkel, by the way. He has not been inducted as a solo artist, just Paul. That's cold. But, uh, he, he says, you know, I want to thank Art Garfunkel and say that I regret the ending of our friendship. And I hope that someday before we die, we will make peace with each other. And then he adds, because he's, he's always got to get that Paul Simon dig in. He says, no rush. <laughs> and there really wasn't a rush i mean although again you know in the in the aughts they ended up reuniting um and i mean i mean do you feel like those reunions were at all fueled by sentimentality or anything or was it just a money grab oh man i don't know i mean i i read somewhere that for the 2003 reunion they made like a million dollars a night to play which is insane 
yeah, I mean, I just can't. But then I also read that during one of the reunions, I don't think it was the 03 one. I think it was one in 1993 where they were like had to be pulled apart backstage. Like just <laughs> so. So the answer to your question, yes, I think it was purely money. Although I have to say I did see the 2003 reunion show. It was uh, actually one of my first concerts now that I think about it. Um, and it was really incredible. I who was, you know, sort of dimly aware of their 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 tumultuous backstory, was kind of watching, trying to see if there were any signs of animosity. And I thought it was very warm and sweet. And then they they brought they had the Everly Brothers as their opening act, and they all sang together, and it was really great. So it, at least from an audience perspective, it was awesome. But, uh, but yeah. But then, but then they do another tour in 2010, or there was this idea that they were going to do a tour. And then they played Jazz Fest in, in New Orleans. And... They're playing the show, and it becomes clear that like Art Garfunkel can't sing at all. That he has like an issue with his vocal cords. I guess it was like a partial paralysis of his vocal cords. And apparently, this had been an issue, and like he had told Simon that it was going to be fine, that he was going to you know be able to do the tour. But it becomes clear that that's not going to happen, and they have to cancel all these dates. And I think it cost them like a million dollars each. To cancel the is like a huge loss that they had to take, and it seems like that is the final of final straws with these guys. Like, because I think Paul Simon's attitude was like he let us down. Like this, this, this screw up who doesn't want to work hard. I work way harder than him, and he's finally screwed me again, and I'm not going to let it happen. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, it was a case of like, you know what? If you just told me, you know what, my voice is 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 in trouble. I need some time to recuperate. It would have been fine. But the fact that you claim you're fine, and then we get up there at the at the jazz festival and sort of embarrass ourselves and just have to sort of coast on the audience's like, you know, just feelings of of sentimentality towards us, that's something totally different. So really, was that he just felt he couldn't trust him anymore? Like, I don't trust you when you say you're fine. I don't trust you about anything, which kind of now is almost like the true Taylor thing all like they both have this thing that they glob onto as the reason we don't trust one another uh really heartbreaking for these two old friends yeah yeah I think you said I'm tired of all the drama it is like I just he just felt like Art Garfunkel was a fountain of drama in his life he didn't want to deal with anymore and so they have this parting of ways and there's radio silence for a little while with these guys but then Art Garfunkel takes a shot at him in 2015 like, can you because like, he have you read that interview like he did an interview with the telegraph it's like oh, a pretty amazing story to read oh it's brutal i mean he, he takes it back and said you know what i i was friends with him i i felt bad for him he was a short little nerdy kid and by showing him kindness i and this is a quote created a monster right. and <laughs> and also accused him of one of many times of suffering from a napoleon complex like we talked about earlier but he also you know, in his own way, sort of laments the loss of their partnership. He was saying, like, you know, the, the whole split is really strange. It's not my choice. It's nothing that I would have done. I want to open up about this. I don't want to say I'm anti-Paul Simon, and I love that the world still loves Simon and Garfunkel, but it's perverse not to enjoy the glory and walk away from it. It's crazy. He said he would have taken a rest from Paul, but he would love to have gotten back together, but um, that just wasn't going to happen. Yeah, and, and and Simon did his own interview with NPR where he made it clear that like he wanted nothing more to do with Art Garfunkel. Like, there's a, the, and you know, reading his quote, I mean, it makes sense to me. Like, what he basically said was, you know, if I could get together with him and it was fun, you know, I would do it. You know, but there's really nothing musically there to be left, you know, to explore, and and it, it just seems like a drag. You know, like when we get back together, and he said, you know. I have a lot of musical areas that I like to play in, so that'll never happen again. That's that. I mean, I feel like this is also informed by, well, by a couple things. One, Simon had like a great creative renaissance. I feel like in the last like decade of his career, like in in, in the 2010s, like he put out some really great records. I think So Beautiful or So What is actually like one of my favorite Paul Simon solo records. Uh, oh yeah, I even like surprise in 06. Yeah, no, he's surprise got some great is great. You're ones. the, I mean, you're the one is a really great record that was nominated, I yeah. think, for album of the year at the Grammys. So, and he also attained like a certain level of hipness too, which was a little bit of a surprise. But everyone from like Conor Oberst to Bright Eyes to you know Ezra Koenig of Vampire Weekend, uh, you know, all these young indie musicians started talking about Paul Simon. 
and and really talking about Graceland more than like Simon and Garfunkel stuff, um, where he didn't really need to go back to that bank anymore. You know, he didn't need the capital that he would sometimes get from that Simon and Garfunkel well, you know, like when his career was was at a downswing. And, and of course now, you know, Paul Simon retired, supposedly, although we'll see what happens with that. But he did his uh, final performances in 2018. I heard him qualify that by saying that he wasn't going to do a tour again, but he may do like a one-off show in New York or something if the if the moment strikes him. Uh, so maybe there, I mean, I don't know, do you think like he would ever call up Artie and say, hey, let's sing one more time? I mean, it just seems inconceivable to me. I mean, that seemed like it would have been the moment because his final show in 2018 was at Corona Park, which was like, you know, a bike ride away from where they grew up. It would have been just the most perfect way to put a cherry on, on his, his live career. Uh, but he didn't. And I, I think uh, around the same time, Art called this the coldest period in their long friendship. And he said there's a real sense that he might not hear from him again. And he also said, you know what? I don't know if I care. Oh, because of because of true Taylor, <laughs> <laughs> the true Taylor thing, you know, I guess what now it's 60 years later. I mean, he's probably still pissed off about true Taylor. Um, well, let's make the pro case for each side. I think with Paul Simon, it's a pretty obvious case. And like I said before, uh, you know, in like the final decade or so of his career, assuming that his career has ended, Paul Simon really had a renaissance where a new generation of people were embracing his music. And it seemed like his records, especially Graceland, it seemed like it was more influential than ever. And I think it really speaks to how Paul Simon, to me, is like really rare artist who was able to continually reinvent himself through every decade. Um, and, and really like in the 2010s, like I would take his records over anyone else from the sixties generation, even like Bob Dylan, who I love. I think the Paul Simon records from the 2010s are better than Paul Simon's records from that time or Neil Young or, I mean, Leonard Cohen put out some great records, but I still like the Paul Simon records a lot. And in, you know, in, in the case of Simon and Garfunkel, I mean, there's no question that he brought more to the table musically. And, you know, like I said earlier, that five-year span in the late 60s uh, where Simon was just cranking out hits uh, when he was in Simon and Garfunkel, I mean, those songs are still iconic. And as big as Graceland is and some of the other Paul Simon solo records, I don't think that he has a single song from his solo career that's as big as Mrs. Robinson or Bridge Over Troubled Water or The Sounds of Silence. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to me, he's on the upper tier, the the, the top tier of, of rock singer-songwriters. Uh, and I don't think there's any question about that. The thing that always blows my mind, too, is thinking about, you know, his, lyrically, he's, I think he's on par with Dylan. He's incredible. But he also is such an innovator, just... With the musical side of things too, with the instrumental side, just toying with just being such an influence in world music from the Jamaican sounds of Mother and Child Reunion, the New Orleans stuff on Ryman Simon, Puerto Rican sounds, South African sounds. Uh, the uh, Cape Man soundtrack was incredible. I thought like it really it's it's rare to have somebody who excels at, at at the words and the music. I think in the way that Paul Simon does. Yeah, and I mean he's he's a really good singer too. Which is funny because he wasn't the lead singer really of Simon and Garfunkel, but like he could have been, you feel like? I mean, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, you listen to like one of my favorite songs is uh, I Know What I Know because he sounds like an actor on it, you know? Like he's really like right. giving a performance and putting so much like personality in this delivery. And I think art, you know, I mean, can't say anything disparaging about his, his instrument. It's it's amazing. But I think he's more self-consciously a singer, you know, in quotes. But Paul is this classic singer-songwriter where he's sort of more he's better at communicating the song's meaning which like you touched on earlier wasn't Art's strong suit at all like it, it, it kind of he was more more preoccupied with the melodies oh yeah I, I love his vocals I actually think I heard a great analogy where uh where Art's vocals in the Simon and Garfunkel songs were the frosting but Simon's is the cake you know, if you have too much frosting, <laughs> you get sick. You can't, you can't handle it. You got to have like the cake there to, to sort of balance it out, which that's kind of how I feel. Like so I, I actually, the songs where Art takes the lead on uh, Simon Garfunkel tracks, like for Emily Weber and May Find Her, I, 
they aren't my favorite songs. I, I feel like I really need them both to either be singing together or alternating verses. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think Bridge Over Troubled Water is like the exception to that. I think his vocal is, uh, you can't knock his vocal on that song. It's a beautiful vocal and he really kills it. But yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with that, uh, that like everything you said. However, transitioning to the Art Garfunkel side, the pro-Art, the pro-Garfunkel, um, it makes me think in a way of our Mike Love and Brian Wilson episode because I think there's kind of a similar dynamic here just in terms of, you know, Mike Love, I think it's easy to dis- to disparage him and he does get diminished a lot, you know, in comparison to Brian Wilson, who's this great songwriter that was the creative engine of that band. I think with Art Garfunkel, you know, he was the front person of Simon and Garfunkel. And he was the person who I think helped get those songs on the radio because his voice was so beautiful. And he gave those songs a pop edge that they might not have otherwise had. You know, like if you listen to some of those early uh, Simon and Garfunkel songs from that uh, Wednesday 3 a.m. record, or there's a record called the Paul Simon Songbook that came out in 65 when he was in England and, and essentially kind of flirting with the idea of being a solo artist. You know, he is in the mold of like the singer songwriters of that time. And he's writing great songs, but I don't know if he was writing hits necessarily. And it seems like Garfunkel was a pivotal part of them being a big pop group. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, not only just the vocals, but also, like we were saying earlier, it's arrangements, too. I mean, because most of the songs in the Paul Simon songbook, maybe like two thirds of them end up surfacing, probably even more end up surfacing as Simon and Garfunkel songs. And I mean, it's it's night and day. It's still the the songs, as Paul does them on the Paul Simon songbook, almost sound like demos to me. But they're so much more enriched by that 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 vocal harmony. You know, I mean, it's just really I, I think that a lot of if it was just Paul being a a folk rock artist alone without Garfunkel in the mid 60s, you would have had more songs like the bright green pleasure machine and uh, <laughs> whatever the one where he's talking about Ben McNamara and, and John O'Hara and whatever the one that's like basically he's like pre rapping about all these like political figures at the time. Not my favorite Cyber or Garfunkel songs. There's something like there's this kind of like wise guy city kid vibe to him, which is cool, but I it, it never really worked for me. And so I think it, it was that that balance that made it work. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. It brings us to the conclusion here where we talk about like why these guys should be together or why they should be reconciled. And I mean, I was thinking about this. I feel like for a really long time, Simon and Garfunkel as a group was bigger than Paul Simon in his solo career. And maybe that's changed in recent years just because it does seem like Graceland is one of those albums that younger generations rediscover and get into in a way that they don't necessarily do with a lot of other you know, boomer era classics. Like it seems like now maybe for a person who's under the age of 30 that they think of Graceland first uh, when they think about Paul Simon. But I feel like for like most of his career, he was still in the shadow like of like a lot of those big Simon and Garfunkel songs. Um, Bridge Over Troubled Water and Sounds of Silence. Again, I don't, I feel like when he plays live, like those are probably still the songs he plays last because they're so iconic and they were such big hits and they're still, you know, like on oldies radio all the time. And again, that speaks to the power that those two had as a partnership. You know, we talked about Lennon and McCartney being a great partnership within the Beatles, but in terms of like just the performance duo, I mean, Simon and Garfunkel, I feel like created a mold that other people have tried to replicate, but have never quite topped. Like that still seems like the archetypical two person group, you know, they were taking it from the Everly brothers, obviously, but they took it to another place and made it even bigger. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's sad how they just they resented each other's gifts, you know, I mean, even at the height of the 60s, Paul was seeing a therapist something like four times a week because he wasn't happy. You know, Paul wished he could be as tall and handsome and as intelligent as Art and sing as well as him. And Art was threatened by the fact that Paul was this genius songwriter who sort of controlled the direction of the partnership. And I, I think Art had a quote in the 80s where he described it really perfectly. He said, we were trying to make one perfect person together. And, I, you know, I mean, that's, that's such a great definition of a, of a working partnership. Um and yeah, it's just sad. And I think, and the two of them together too, I mean, not to sound like, you know, a total boomer sympathizer, which I absolutely am, but I mean, their split coincided kind of like the Beatles with the end of the sixties and the death of a certain kind of optimism. So I think the, the pair of them together have a kind of cultural power that just transcend an ordinary band reunion. You know, it's like seeing them together is like a happy ending. It's them kind of making good on the promise of, of old friends, you know, sitting together like, like bookends at 70 years old, you know, I mean, two kids from the neighborhood who, who made it and survived not only the maelstrom of the sixties, but just the craziness of fame and just of growing older, you know, they're still alive. They're still here. They're still making music and they're still friends. And you, 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 you want so badly for it to end that way, you know? Well, I, I have to say that for me personally, I kind of like the tension that exists between them because I think it makes them more interesting. You know, if it was just that 60s kind of peace vibe with this group, I think it would seem a little corny. Like in a way, they remind me of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, who we are definitely going to be talking about on this show at some point. I think we're going to need like 20 episodes to talk about <laughs> that whole mess. Um, but it's just such a fascinating contrast to me between like this mellow music and then all of this anger and resentment going on beneath the surface. It, it, it gives Simon and Garfunkel an edge that I think they wouldn't have otherwise had, but they need. And it, it it's part of what draws me back to their story all the time. It's like, okay, there's actually some real blood and guts behind those beautiful harmonies in this band. Yeah, and it's like Jeff, uh, Jeff Tweedy and Jay Farrar, too. You know, it's something that, that feels so relatable to have these, these two school friends that you kind of grew apart from. And that's painful, you know? I mean, there's pain when you think of all the shared history, but the fact that you really aren't aren't the same people and aren't seeing together eye to eye now. Um, yeah, there's something painfully real about that just at, at a human scale. I mean, we all have those people in our lives, and just with them, it's the same deal, except they just have songs that have become imprinted on generations of people well i'm sure 
you and I, Jordan, are not going to be like Simon and Garfunkel. Maybe oh, we'll no. end up on a park bench of our own. Sitting together like bookends, looking back on the hundreds of feuds we've recapped. <laughs> <laughs> That's my hope, my friend. Right. It's a good one. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back with more Rivals next week. Thanks, everyone. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school. Like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.